Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 84, Go West. One of the things I have to emphasise about colonial Virginia at 1700 is how small it really was. It was small, very small. It was only a fraction of the size of modern Virginia, never mind the size of the state before West Virginia broke off in the Civil War. We're going to be talking a lot about the geography of Virginia for the beginning of this episode, so we'll start things off with a breakdown of the state. We can break the state of Virginia into five areas. The Tidewater, the Piedmont, the Blue Ridge Mountains, the Ridge and Valley region, and the Cumberland Plateau, sometimes called the Appalachian Plateau. Now, let's talk about them in a bit more detail. Firstly, we have the Tidewater. The Tidewater is part of the Atlantic Coastal Plain, a broad area of land which stretches from the New England Bight in the north, all the way down the Atlantic seaboard, covering most of Georgia and all of Florida. It is an area usually 50 to 100 kilometres by the ocean, and is characterised by low, wet land. The average elevation of the area is less than 900 metres above sea level, and it contains lots of rivers as well as areas of swamp and marsh. It is, in short, an area perfect for agriculture. The Tidewater, specifically, covers eastern Virginia, as well as areas of Maryland and North Carolina. It is split into two types of geography low swamp and tidal marsh, and then a higher area which was very well suited to agriculture. It is the area around the Chesapeake and the major rivers, such as the Potomac, the Rappahannock, the James and the York, which made several peninsulas in the bay. As I'm sure you've noticed by now, the Tidewater is basically the only area we've covered so far. I've mentioned the Piedmonts once or twice, which was on the other side of the fall line, but really it's only been this very narrow area of Virginia that was Virginia. I'll put a map up on the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast, and on Twitter, at HistoryJamie, so it's clear exactly what I'm talking about here, as long as you're not driving while you're listening to this it might be a bad idea to get that map if you're driving. Anyway, this is the area we've been dealing with. Jamestown was in the lower, swampy area, which helped cause all the disease which plagued the colony in the early years. I talked about how things had moved inland, and they had, but it was all relative. Williamsburg was only a few miles inland from Jamestown, Even when we were talking about the new area being colonised by Spotswood, Spotsylvania, it was also not that far from the coast. It is about on level with Richmond. This area was slightly drier and was very well suited for agriculture, which is why it was devoured by hungry planters who used it for tobacco to export. Now, this was setting up two problems which would help drive the activity we're going to talk about in this episode, and what would ultimately destroy Virginia's position as the grandest colony. 
and then states of them all. There is a reason that Virginia doesn't carry the weight it did during the period of the Virginia dynasty of Washington, Jefferson, Madison and Monroe. As Virginia became an economic powerhouse, more and more people came, wanting to get a piece of the action and set up their own tobacco plantations. This rapid population growth fueled the drive westwards. This would have been fine for the colony were it not for one thing. Tobacco is a crop which heavily drains the soil of nutrition, more than most other food staples and cash crops. Rather than reusing plots, what tended to happen was that new land was cultivated. Eventually, land in the tidewater was used up and they needed to begin pushing into the interior. As the population grew, more land was being used up exponentially quickly. Eventually, the wealth of the agricultural industry would leave Virginia, as more land, and better land, was available out west. But that is for the future. For the moment, in the early to mid-18th century, we're just beginning to see the first stages of this as the colony expanded above the fall line and into the Piedmont. I've mentioned the fall line before, but it was a sudden change in elevation which goes along the eastern coast of the states, and it has a number of waterfalls and rapids along it. For obvious reasons, this caused trouble with maritime transportation. Ships could travel up and down the rivers of the tidewater, but they couldn't penetrate the fall line. It was a significant moment, therefore, in roughly the turn of the 18th century, when the Virginians advanced beyond the fall line into the Piedmont. The Piedmont is named after the Piedmont in Italy. The term means foothills, in the case of Italy referring to the foothills of the Alps, and in Virginia the foothills of the Appalachians. It is essentially a plateau that is quite narrow in the north, but which widens in the south. In North Carolina, it's several hundred miles across, and it covers most of central Virginia, including the area of Richmond, as well as that of Baltimore and DC further north. The soil is clay-based and is still quite fertile, although less so than that of the Tidewater. The main crop of the Piedmont in Virginia was corn, while further south it was cotton. And in the north, it tended to be used for dairy farming. Moving across the Piedmont, the elevation continues to rise until you reach the Blue Ridge Mountains, part of the wider Appalachians. This contains the highest point in the state, Mount Rogers, which stands at 1,746 metres, or if you prefer, 5,729 feet. It is quite common in mountains like these for there to be a tree line, a point up the mountain where it simply becomes too cold and windy for trees to grow, forming an alpine tundra. However, this isn't the case for the Blue Ridge Mountains. The range is quite far south, and so is dominated by oak forests. While settlers were just making their way onto the Piedmont by the year 1700, Explorers were just reaching its edge, and 
making forays into the other side of the mountain range, the Ridge and Valley Appalachians. It's quite easy to work out what the Ridge and Valley Appalachians are. They're a series of ridges and valleys which go through the Appalachian Range. The main valley is the Great Appalachian Valley, although there are numerous smaller ones. This area marks the edge of Virginia and begins to get into what would eventually become the states of Kentucky and Tennessee, as well as part of West Virginia. The final part of the geography to mention is the Cumberland Plateau, which is located in the western corner of Virginia, which is a southern part of the wider Appalachian Plateau. The Great Plains, which stretch west of the Appalachians, and which forms a great part of the Ohio Valley, a vast water basin, which includes Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Kentucky, and Tennessee, as the Ohio River makes its way westward from Pittsburgh. The river forms most of the northern border of Kentucky, and the point where it joins the Mississippi is the border between Kentucky, Illinois, and Missouri although we're getting a bit far ahead of ourselves now. Anyway, all of this is quite important. As we talk about the various stages of westward expansion, hopefully now it makes a bit more sense and actually means something. I'll be able to talk about the Ohio Valley, and it will be a name that you recognise, hopefully. Now that we've had that prolonged introduction, let's get into things. Starting in 1721, six years before the arrival of William Gooch. Spotswood's administration was drawing to a close, and he made the major step of creating the county of Spotsylvania, which was the first county organised beyond the Tidewater, and even made it to the Blue Ridge Mountains. This was about to spark a rapid expansion over the next 30 years. When Gooch met the assembly in February 1728, the situation was still the same, with only the one county beyond the Tidewater, but this changed in March. When the assembly created Goochland, which spanned across the Piedmont to the Blue Ridge, this was followed by a number of other counties which followed the rivers as they made their way into the interior. I'll put a map of this up on the website. This was all made possible by the liberalisation of the land-grant process, which began in 1701, allowing rapid acquisition of land for speculators. Gooch was a firm defender of this system to the Board of Trade, deeming it necessary for the rapid expansion that had taken place. The requirements for claiming the land also changed, with vast amounts of land available provided that settlers could be provided. 1,000 acres per family settled. This was a highly effective way of expanding, as those looking for land began to move into the Great Appalachian Valley beyond the Blue Ridge. Some huge tracts of land were given out, for example, Robert Carter and Man Page took out a 50,000-acre tract of land. These speculators were able to make profits on the land, but it also allowed small households to acquire land, 
it was much easier for them to buy a small farm from a speculator than going through the process of surveying land and securing a patent at the capital of Virginia. The leaders of the Tidewater were those pushing the drive, the local educated leadership. This meant that the Virginian frontier was quite unusual, never having a primitive stage in this particular westward push. There were some unsavoury figures who thrived in this pioneer country, beyond the reach of organised government. There were plenty of thieves who caused a multitude of problems, which is why I find some of the descriptions of this stage of American history hilarious. One of the things that has been brought up about my coverage of the topic of American history is that people appreciate my distance from the topic and that I don't fall into cliches or reverence for the lore of American history. This hasn't been that relevant so far, but I must say, reading about this, you would not believe how this process of pioneering is described. A good go-to word for authors on the subject is rugged. This was a land of rugged individuals who played by their own rules. Ha. It wasn't to last for long. As the population increased, the settlers began to organise themselves, and the larger counties, such as Spotsylvania, were broken up into more usable administrative units. By the middle of the 1740s, there were numerous counties that were popping up west of the Blue Ridge Mountains, such as Frederick and Augusta. The settlers further south in the James and Roanoke area were a bit slower than those of the Rappanoke and Potomac, although it was not too far behind. A man of note who moved in this migration was one Peter Jefferson. After inheriting land above the James Falls in 1731, Peter, of course, being the father of Thomas Jefferson, who would be born in 1744. The Roanoke area in the far south of the colony was the slowest, which is explained partly by geography. The Piedmont was not far from the coast in the north, so along with encouragement from Spotswood, this had been the first area to be colonised. There were nearby towns and ports, so it was quite easy to move tobacco out from the new lands being opened up. In contrast, the Roanoke Valley area was a lot further from the coast, and there was also the added complication that it didn't flow into the Chesapeake, and instead ended its course in another colony. The county of Brunswick, which made up the area drained by the Roanoke, took a full 12 years to be created, not being organised until 1732. So slow was the migration to the Roanoke Valley that in 1738, the colony announced that people who moved to the area would be exempt from public, county and parish levies for a full 10 years. The disputed territory between Virginia and North Carolina was part of the reason of the slowness of development. It would take until 1728 for a commission between the two colonies to be set up to actually agree where the border was. The vagueness of colonial borders was emphasised by the complete lack of a western border to the colony. While the geographical understanding of the colonists had somewhat improved from those early days when 
everyone was looking for a sea route to China, Virginia insisted on claiming everything to the Pacific coast, including what they called the Island of California. They also claimed the land to the west and northwest of Maryland and Pennsylvania, although it was acknowledged that actual colonisation of this land would not take place for some time. If you look at maps of the colonies in the 18th century, a huge chunk of the modern US is shown as claimed by Virginia, and now you know why. When Gooch stepped down as governor in 17. 49 after 22 years, 14 of the 44 counties in Virginia were founded during his administration. This sparked a new stage in the advancement of the frontier, the Ohio Company, founded by several prominent Virginian families such as the Lees and the Washingtons. The Ohio Company secured a land grant for half a million acres to colonise the Ohio Valley. This would lead Britain to conflict with France, Indeed, we are now in 1749, only seven years away from the outbreak of the Seven Years' War in 1756. This means that, since to carry on with Virginia would only mean setting up the Seven Years' War, it's time to change theatre. We need to begin the process of bringing all the states up to 1750 by going up to New England. After that, we can unify the narratives of all the various colonies and plunge into the world of the Seven Years' War and the road to revolution. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.